In this 10th episode of the PK Experience, I sit down with Don Goey, who is a best-selling author of several books, his most recent of which is called The End of Stress, Four Steps to Rewire Your Brain, which you can find on Amazon for less than 10 bucks. Um, Don's background in addressing stress and uh, psychological um, trauma is extensive. He brings a neuroscientific expertise to the table. Um, he's worked with... Uh, all types of stress, stressful situations from people dealing with terminal illnesses to parents struggling with the loss of a child, prisoners adjusting to life sentences, refugees in genocidal war. I mean, you, you talk about some of the most stressful, traumatic situations a person can go through, and, and Don has worked with them. Um, he has also been a managing partner of an organization called Pro Attitude, which helps improve human performance in the workplace by ending stress in the workplace. Um, he was also the manager of the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford Med School and uh, ran a regional emergency medical services system for 12 years, uh, which is, was also an internationally recognized institution that pioneered an entire approach to dealing with catastrophic life events. So um, Don comes across as a very humble, um, modest guy, but I'm telling you, his background is extensive. He knows what he's talking about. And one of the greatest things about him that I noticed was he gives very, very practical advice. So as he's talking about some of these deeper <clears throat> you know, potentially more academically difficult things to understand, he'll then shift into here's the four steps to address it, you know, and it's, and it's, uh, makes it very, very practical to get real results. And again, he's dealt with, you know, some of the most stressful situations that people can, can, uh, can experience in life. And so he's recognized what the patterns are that they go through and then developed a system to help people end that stress. So, Obviously, we all deal with a lot of stress to varying degrees in our very go, go, go world. Um, Don is about the top guy that you can go to to address the stress. But one of the things I want to emphasize before we get into the interview is how addressing the mental side of stress can actually have a physiological response. So it's not just about finding mental peace, which of course is a huge part of it, but that achieving that level of mental peace and mental um uh, well, mental peace, I guess, is uh, that that it has a connection to the body. And studies have shown um, consistently that stress tends to wear down the body. It tends to uh, make it more prone to illness and injury. And so um, addressing stress in your life can have a positive effect on your well-being, on your physical health. And I share an example of how that helped me actually heal a tumor, um, which I'm sure is just the most exciting thing that you want to hear about, but it is the uh, it is the example that I have to share with you. So, um, with that, let's dive into the interview. Again, this is Don Goey, author of The End of Stress. All right, so we are actually recording, Don. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me on the call today. I'm actually very excited to talk to you. Um, you've gotten into some fascinating uh, topics that I'm very interested in. But um, for the listeners, why don't you just briefly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit of, uh, about your background and how you got into basically uh, brain science. Brain science. Well, I came into brain science the hard way. Um, <laughs> 30 years ago, I was working at a big university medical school and um, I was a young man, but rising fast, you know, in the in the career, up the career ladder. And um, I 
one in the course of one week, I was fired from that job. Me and the uh, chairman of the department uh, were banging heads and we're not getting along. And nine days after that, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And at that time, I had four children, uh, mortgage, um, you know, a, a, a level of responsibility that disability insurance wasn't going to cover. And uh, the doctors told me to prepare for the worst. It was a big tumor. It was in an unfortunate place. The surgeries created could create collateral damage that would prohibit me from ever working again. Mm. That's what I was facing. And um, I had two weeks before the surgery was going to happen. Um, and during that two-week period, I, um, I don't think I've ever been more terrified. Every night I wake up at like three in the morning and stare out the picture window into the cold, dark night. And I was, would think, you know, my family's doomed. I failed them. And uh, there's no way, uh, there's no way I come out of this. Even, even if, even if the collateral damage isn't so bad, nobody's going to hire somebody that walks into a room with a walker who's drooling and who's half of his face is paralyzed, can't hear very well because, you know, he lost lost his eighth cranial nerve. Um, all of those were predictable outcomes. And um, I, I just didn't think I was, was going to make it. And that went on for for two weeks. Actually, I said two weeks. And I, th that process went on for two weeks. I had six weeks before the surgery. Um, and at the end of that two-week period, in the middle of one of these dark nights of the soul, I asked myself, what, what was worse? The uh, abject fear that was happening in me um, all day long for the last two weeks, freezing me. Um, I can hardly even speak to people at times. And um, or the what was going to happen in the future, which was a question mark, although the question mark had been filled in with some gory details. And I, I decided, you know, it was really clear to me that the abject fear was worse. And it was really the only thing I could do something about. So I challenged myself to bring it more into awareness, try to understand the kind of the level of fear I was in. And, and it actually sort of amplified. It's, it swelled. It ex and, um, and then I began to notice the thoughts that I was thinking. And the story I was telling myself, you know, that my family is going to be homeless. My, the, the, my children lives are going to be ruined and my marriage is probably going to fail because of all this all of these were thoughts were the story that um was running in my head and so i asked myself well what's the one fear that sums this whole thing up and it was that i'm doomed hmm. that i failed and i'm doomed hmm. the fear of failure and and, and you know the, the 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 fear of dying and um and I'm sorry, so how, I how old were you at this time? I was about 38. Okay. And my kids were little. And so I asked myself at the end of that, um, what does my experience become when I don't believe we're doomed? I don't have to know how this situation can be, be salvaged, can be saved in any way. But what if I don't believe the thought I'm doomed? What if the, I don't believe that, that I failed? That, I, that there's something in this that I can turn around. And I immediately experienced relief. And it was clear to me that the relief that I was experiencing was, was um, 
not from anything actually changing except a thought. Mm. I stopped, believe, and then I could really see how powerful it was that uh, how powerful thoughts become when they're believed. Uh, and then when you don't believe a stressful thought, when you don't believe a thought that's causing you to be afraid, that's terrifying you and oppressing you, um, it doesn't turn into abject fear. Right. It doesn't turn into anything. It just disappears like a cloud that passes the sky. You know, I could see that. It, was, it kind of amazed me. And as I relaxed into the relief, I just let go to, to, to feeling better. Um, I noticed a shift happen in me emotionally. I, I went from an experience of contraction, like the walls are closing in on me, to an experience of expansion. Things began to open up. My heart began to open up. My mind began to open up. Um, I began to feel better. And um, and then I noticed I was relatively at peace. I knew it because when I looked at that, that window that I'd been staring out into the cold, dark night, what I noticed was that the night was actually beautiful. Mm. It was a moonlit night. You know, the light was shimmering off the tree leaves and almost felt sacred. So I made up my mind right then and there that I was going to proceed forward um, with with being at peace through this process of simply letting go of fear thoughts as they arose in the story that they turn into. This uh, this discovery, Don, if I could interrupt you, it sounds very similar to uh, Byron Katie's. Um, do you know who, who she is? Are you familiar with yeah. her? Uh, yeah. Similar kind of thing where, where stress was just compounding and then she uh, discovered that the thought – it wasn't the actual external uh, stress or, or circumstance. It was the thought of the circumstance. A very similar sort of discovery. That's yes. it's, it's interesting. Are, are you familiar with uh, what she calls the work? Yeah, I know her. Okay. I yeah, she. When I was running an agency, uh, when she was just beginning to come out, she, she's incredible person. And yeah, it is, I, it is similar, very similar. In the process of getting liberated from these painful thoughts, these uh, anxiety-producing thoughts that I was experiencing, was the same. I think it's the same for everybody. You know, I don't think we really realize that the extent to which um, thoughts create our reality. Um, the, and to the, particularly thoughts that we believe uh, create our reality. They certainly create our experience of reality. Yes. And then, you know, now there's studies that showing that expectation plays a huge role. 40 years of cognitive therapy has shown that the um, moods that we experience, the emotional state that we live out of, that we experience, are produced by the thoughts we believe. And, how the, and those thoughts that we believe turn into... Um, our expectations, what we think is going to happen. And now there's research at Harvard on the power of suggestion. On the, it's now called the expectancy effect. It's all a part of that placebo effect is that if you think something's going to happen, you actually uh, mobilize whatever, all, everything that's going on around you that's your reality to make it happen. So if you think that this little pill, this little sugar-coated pill, is going to take away your pain, um, half the time it will, more than half the time it will, the placebo effect. Well, it turns out that our lives actually happen that way, that the emotional state that we live out of or produced by the thoughts we believe, turning into what we expect will happen, and we actually end up getting 
what we expect to get. So it's sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy gets wired into our brain. And that's what was happening for me. And so I now had, you know, I had four more weeks to prepare myself for this surgery. And during that time, I practiced this process that I went through that night, you know, at three o'clock in the morning of noticing, becoming keenly aware of when I was thinking fearful thoughts, of noticing the story they were wanting to turn into and and identifying what's the core fear here. And it was always the same core fear, mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the fear of failing, my life failing completely, and then shifting up and not believing the thought. I just re- shifting, asking myself, what does my experience become when I don't believe that thought? And that's the key, really, is, is what does my experience become? Because that's your thoughts are generating your experience. Um, a lot of people think that it go, you, you, you use affirmative, um, affirmative words like uh, everything, you know, every day in every way, um, my life is going to get better and better, right? That's probably the oldest affirmation. Well, you can say that until the cows come in and, and your, your brain, your body, your spirit, your emotional state won't respond to it unless you turn, unless you actually believe it, which then turns it into the experience you're having. So, so if I could pause you for just a second, there's a couple yeah. things I want to I want to note, which was, uh, you, I mean, you started to, you basically explained it, but I want to um, com- expound on it a little bit. You talked about reality, and w- what's fascinating to me is that y- you had this experience where you were dealing with a potentially fatal disease that was your quote-unquote reality but what you were actually feeling was the reality and so when you talk about changing the thoughts and therefore changing the feelings even though the external circumstance remains the same you have a completely new experience a completely new reality of whatever it is that you're dealing with i think so many times that just that separation alone is such an eye opener for so many people because they think that what they're feeling is is objective, concrete, tangible reality when it really is just the feeling or the story of the reality. Um, so I, I thought that was uh, I thought that was very interesting. Uh, I had something else, but it slipped my mind. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, you know, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that. What you described is I had this objective set of circumstances, a brain tumor, you know, and uh, a prognosis that was coming from the doctors that looked pretty dismal. And that was that was creating my experience. Right. And and, and what I was living in was a future in which um, the sky was going to fall on me. Right. Every day. My, my life was going to uh, reach catast- a catastrophic point. But, it, but in terms of reality, if I would orient, would have oriented myself to reality here and now, in the here and now at that moment, I was okay. I said I had a brain tumor in my head, but I was okay. I was alive. I was breathing. I had, I had access to the present moment. I had the ability to choose my emotional experience. Choice was very much alive in me. It's alive in everybody all the time. And um, I could have exercised that choice to change my experience of the present moment, which was always okay. You know, when I was coaching back in 2008 during the financial collapse in, in, uh, in the world, mm-hmm. I was coaching people who, um, who had lost their jobs and also were, were living in homes that were 
in process for foreclosure. And they were going out and trying to find jobs and they weren't getting jobs and they were they were really depressed and upset. And the one thing that turned around their emotional experience so that when they went to apply for a job, they didn't look as desperate as they had looked in the past. It's, usually employers don't hire people hire people that are desperate. You know, it was working their emotional state was really working against them. The level of stress they were coming into that interview. Uh, was really working against them. And the one thing that helped really calm them down and bring their stress level down so that their their power, particularly their brain power, could rise again, because stress really impacts that, debilitates all the higher brain function. The one thing that worked for these people is that, um, are you okay right now, today? Is there enough food in the refrigerator to feed the kids? You know, are the kids happy? Is there a roof over your head today? Even though you you can't pay the mortgage on it, you still have a roof over your head. So here and now is all right. So relate to that. And what they would do is they would relate to that and they would calm down and they would remobilize their their emotional intelligence and their intellectual power and they would go out. And um, nearly all of those people found jobs. And the people who couldn't make that shift back into the – realistic, which is, I am okay this moment, couldn't let go of their fear of the future and and be present here and now and be okay in the here and now and, and choose to be at peace with themselves and choose to feel calmer, you know, calm, uh, creative, and optimistic about, about what their chances were when they went out into the world to look for a job. The people couldn't do that. Not one of them found a job. Not one of them recovered uh, as quickly as the other ones. And so it's a shift into back into the present moment and, and exercising the power to choose your experience in the moment. And out of that, you create your life. So you mentioned a minute ago um, uh, affirmations. Um, and I've heard critiques on like the movie The Secret where if I just think it it will, it will be, you know, so I'm going to think of a million dollar bank account and, and, you know, an amazing life. And if I just keep thinking those things, I, I will manifest them. But, um, so can you tell me the difference between what you were saying before about affirmations versus really, you know, what you're talking about, which is empowering sort of choosing the experience as opposed to letting it di- dictate it, uh, against you, if that makes sense. Sure. So, when you do an affirmation, the important uh, – it doesn't do much good if you just think it. A lot of people do it like rote, you know. I, I, I am good enough. I am good enough. I am good enough. But, it, but it, if you get underneath that, those thoughts that they're spouting, um, what you find is that their experiences, they don't believe they're good enough. They haven't made the shift to understanding that they really are good enough. They haven't made the shift to understanding that they're – their self-worth is a, is a given. You know, they're, we're, we're all worthy. It's shame that makes us think that we're not. And so if shame is operating at that level, if self-negation, low self-esteem is functioning, then you're not going to believe the words. So it's not a question of saying them. It's a question of believing them, really believing them, believing that they're true about you. And the more, I think that's what, what's even more important is you got to elevate your emotional experience of yourself. And a lot of people measure their, you know, whether they're happy or unhappy, 
with their lives is measured it oftentimes in terms of how they're doing out there in the world. You know, how much money they're making, you know, what's, what rank are they within their, the, you know, the corporate setting that they're working within. Um, are they meeting, are they meeting all of their success objectives? You know, it's all external. And when, when we live out, of, we live like that. Um, our, our emotional state goes up and down because the world is, um, the world doesn't always bend in our direction. You know, it throws us problems. You know, we go out, we try to sell something, and, and you know, we get turned down nine times out of ten. If you play baseball and uh, you're batting two two fifty, you're doing pre- you're doing pretty well by baseball standards. But that means you're feeling three out of four times. Uh, it, you know, the the world goes up and goes down, and if your emotional state's tied to the world. Your life is going to go up and down. So you're riding high in April. You're shot down in May. You're always trying to pull yourself up, and when you're shot down, you're suffering. You know, you're and 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 you're also interpreting who you are as a person, your worth as a person, based on how you're doing out there in the world, how you, how, how how much the world is bending in your direction. Well, so the measures of sex success, if you're concerned about raising your emotional state um, has to be in terms of, of your value system. So you, it's a question of um, uh, how do I measure my success? Well, I measure it in terms of um, was I kind today? Was I forgiving when I needed to be forgiving today? Uh, was, was I loving and empathic to somebody in my family who needed it? Um, did I let go of judgments? Did I let go of fear and stress when it raised its ugly head. Um, when I came through the door at the end of the day, did I shake off the dust of the day and come in and greet, greet my family warmly, you know, and with happiness? And, you know, ultimately, did I choose to be happy today over and over again on the inside, regardless of what was happening on the outside? Um, if, you, if, the, if that's your measurement of success, then what you're doing is you're raising your emotional intelligence. And you're you're and you're raising your your experience. You're you're having a better experience of life, and out of that, um, lo and behold, you actually begin to become more successful in the external world. You know, for a long time, uh, we've operated under the assumption that once I succeed at whatever I, I'm trying to succeed at, you know, once I make that level of money, once I'm that important. In the business world, you know, once I have a, a, I don't know, a BMW and a boat and a a summer home somewhere, I'll be happy. And it turns out that um, it's just the opposite. You know, a lot of the research they've been doing at University of California finds that it's once you're happy, you the the likelihood of you succeeding go way up. And so, if you really want to be focused on succeeding in your life. You need to pay attention to your to your emotional state, your happiness, and that means you need to have to you need to begin to measure your uh, measure success in very different ways. Yeah, there's a there's a simple. Um, you, you probably know this. I'm, I'm forgetting the name of this framework. <coughs> Excuse me, but they uh, a very simple trilogy where it's um, do, have, and be, where 
most people live in that paradigm where they think they have to do something first in order to have something and then therefore they'll be something. And of course the, the um, slippery slope with that is, is if you don't get what it is that you think you need to get in order to be what you want to be, then, you know, you're, you're subject to life's whims and changes and, and whatnot, as opposed to what you're really talking about is be, uh, do, and then have. So you're being that you're choosing that first, that emotional, uh, choice. You're choosing it regardless of external circumstances. And then that guides, uh, I, the translation I have is that then guides your doing and therefore the manifestation of it, the byproduct of that is like you were saying, you're just naturally more successful. I mean, in practical terms, when you think about it, who are the people that you want to relate to, whether it's personal relationships or business relationships? It's those people who are empowered, who are resourceful under stress, who uh, don't complain, who um, take whatever hand they're dealt and and make the best of it, right? So what you're really talking about is unlocking um, that that difference between I think where most people live, where a lot of people live anyway, is that sort of victim mindset where their reality is outside of their control. And if somebody cuts them off, you know, on the highway, on the way to work, they're going to have a bad day. And well, how, and, and I've actually brought this up to people and tried to communicate this concept. And there's some people are so locked into my external circumstance is my reality. Like they just can't seem to separate the, the feeling of the external event and the and and the and the actual event itself. Um, what advice do you have for somebody who, using that example of being cut off in the highway, right? Somebody cuts you off. Maybe you have a, a child in the car, and and somebody cuts you off. It's very dangerous. What do you mean? I can choose to be at peace. But what do you mean? I can be happy or grateful or or whatever. I mean, I have to be upset, right? Like that's kind of the response that I've gotten on some of this. So what's your advice for somebody who's dealing with, like you said, maybe it's a terminal illness or a job layoff or a, a traumatic breakup or, or what have you. How do you, what's your advice to, to help somebody in that situation to separate the event from the feeling of it? Well, you know, basically it begins with honestly facing yourself, asking yourself in an honest way, am I happy, you know, um, in the way in which that I relate to people, um, am I positive? And, and at, to ask yourself that, and, and if the answer to that question is, no, I'm not consistently happy, ha- happiness isn't like a strong suit of mine, and then you, and, um, and then you relate to the notion or, or a pile of research this high that says until you are um, your, your life isn't going to work in the way that you're trying to make it work and so now you're in now, you, now you're invited into an experiment to see if that's really true and so you're invited and inviting you into this experiment is inviting you into practice something that um, promises you that it will show you that what where your life is happening actually where where your life is is uh, being created is on the inside not not on the outside and so the way that that starts is um, with pra- with a practice stepping into a practice that will consistently shift 
your attitude. You know, the, the, the one truth is, is that there are, um, there's really nothing in the world we completely control. There's nothing external to us we completely control from traffic to the stock market to whether we keep our job to, to whether our, our, our uh, marriage fails or whatever. You know, so much of it is we're trying to influence and work our way, negotiate our way to getting it, what it is we want out of this world. But we don't, we don't control everything. Uh, not by a long shot. The one thing that we do control completely is our attitude, mm-hmm. the way we come into relationship with the world, the way we come into relationships with what you would describe so well as these ups and downs that occur. And, um, and that, 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 you, that attitude is actually the one thing that shapes uh, the experience we end up having as we move through life. It's why it's why a manager said uh, attitudes more important than facts. Um, it's why Viktor Frankl said it's the last of freedoms. The last of human freedoms is to choose your own way in any situation. And uh, and until you really begin to settle into a practice that's uh, accentuating a positive attitude, an attitude that can generate the, the power of peace, um, you're not going to understand it as power. Well, the other thing about attitude, too, and mindset, is that um, in the last 15 years, what neuroscience has discovered is that um, our brain takes its direction from our mindset. And so, you know, if you have somebody, like, driving down the street and they, they typically scream and yell at um, aggressive drivers, um, they get, in other words, they get aggressive with address, aggressive drivers, it's largely because of the way their brain got wired, the way the genetics wired their, ge- their brain. 50% of the way in which our personality is generated out of our brain and the way we come into relationship with the world has to do with genetics. Um, and, you know, for, for a good number of us, a large percentage of us, uh, our genetics wires us for a hyperactive stress response system. In other words, to, to be stressed by life. Um, it's, and it's, a, it's out of a gene that's called the REDD1 gene, red, which is a good color for stress reactions. And, uh, and, and that's what the research is found. You know, you got a 50-50 chance of, of leaving, living a good life uh, or a life of stress depending on your genetics. Now, that sounds very um, disempowering, and, and it sounds like it doesn't matter what my attitude is. If I'm genetically prone to be stressed all the time, then that's just going to be my reality. What's your response to that? Well, then the, what, what, the, what the research shows is that um, what people end up doing when they're wired in that way is they, they begin, they become externally focused and they, they think that, well, the way in which I can shift from a life of stress to the good life is by changing my circumstances. And then what the research shows is that, um, that that only uh, has a 10% effect on whether you're living a life of stress or whether you're living a good life. And they learned that, you know, from um, people who won the lottery. You know, for six months, they're elated at having all this money and all the opportunities it extends to them. And then after them, if, they're, if their emotional set point is determined by the stress gene, they revert back to being pessimists. And we'll talk to you about all the people trying to borrow money from me. You know, they'll talk on and on like that. Uh, and they also uh, uh, juxtapose it as paraplegics, people who suddenly, tragically um, became paraplegic 
And for six months, they were clinically depressed and suicidal. And they reached the point where they realized either I, either I magnify as positive an attitude as I can to turn this lemon into lemonade, or, or I die. You know, but I can't live in this mental state of clinical depression. And they make the shift. And so you see these people, you, know, you watch the Special Olympics. What an extraordinary shift those people had to make to, to, to compete out in the world, bend the world in their direction. Mm-hmm. So this only, that's where it comes from. It's only 10% change your circumstances. So if that's where you're focusing yourself, focusing yourself to make the shift, um, you're, you're focusing yourself in a place where the odds aren't in your favor. And then what they discovered is 40% of what will determine whether you're living a life of stress or, or the good life is your attitude, your mindset. And now what they're discovering is that a shift in mindset to the positive, uh, to, to being calm or more creative, more optimistic as you, as you face whatever you have to face day to day throughout the day, uh, a shift in attitude in that direction actually downregulates the stress gene. So now you have put yourself in a position where you had 90% of, of what you bring to the game of changing your circumstances is now being applied to it. And you, you know, now you're empowered. And yeah. how did you empower yourself by shifting your mindset? Yes. Um, a lot of this, um, I mean, th- you're not a layman's uh, a, a voice in this whole thing. I mean, you, speak a little bit just to sort of your background in neuroscience and uh, and and your education and whatnot, so that so people understand sort of the the credibility that you bring to this conversation. Well, my education, uh, my academic education, uh, doesn't relate to it really. But when I, very early on in my career, um, I fell in with. Uh, Carl Rogers, who's um, arguably the most important psychologist in, in American history and maybe in, in the history of psychology. Um, and he was one of the um, first people to research therapeutic techniques. And, um, and his interest was in human potential. So I fell into a career working within w- working human potential and ended up in some interesting places in apartment psychiatry at, at uh, Stanford University, I worked in that for a number of years, working next to some really wonderful people. Um, and after I left Stanford, um, I directed an institute that pioneered a psychosocial approach to helping people overcome catastrophic life events. We worked with some of the most stressful situations human beings face. People facing life-threatening illnesses like like AIDS. We were right in the middle of the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco um, when people were dying right and left from that. Uh, we worked with people in the back wards of, of uh, the cancer cancer units. Um, we worked with parents who had lost a child, probably the most stressful, devastating uh, event a human being suffers. Did you work? Um, with, um, I'm sorry. Did you work with any uh, veterans, uh, like with PTSD and, and wartime PTSD? No, okay. we 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 didn't we didn't work with that. But what we did work in the refugee camps in um, Croatia and Bosnia during that genocidal war, and we worked with uh, people who were suffering with extreme PTSD, particularly women who had been systematically. Um, 
kidnapped and raped and, and held hostage until uh, they, they were lucky enough to get released um, and worked with, uh, worked with soldiers over there. We worked with prisoners in, at San Quentin Prison, prison who were serving life sentences. Basically, what the approach we, we were teaching people was an approach to facing a catastrophic life event like, like, like those events um, that, that leads you to believe, that overwhelms you initially. What, what would leads you, you to believe? Was, sorry to interrupt. What, what would you say was one of your most dramatic turnarounds from somebody that dealt with something that you were able to apply this, this awareness uh, to and, and have them? A shift in attitude? Yep. Um, the, the, the one I was, sorry, I was just telling you recently is, is someone that I worked with um, um, who, when she was in her early 20s, she was diagnosed with um, a serious cancer that there was no cure for. And when she went to her doctor, she told um, her, she asked her doctor, what are my chances? And her doctor, I kind of, I kind of think flippantly said over his shoulders, uh, he said 97%. Hmm. And she interpreted that 97% to mean that that's what her chances were of remission, of moving into remission. And so when she left the doctor's office, her attitude was built on the belief that she had a 97% chance of beating this, and she told her husband, and that she went through the whole course of treatment with that belief. And uh, it wasn't until her case was presented at, at, at Stanford Hospital in front of a group of doctors because um, she was one of the first to be cured, uh, to go into remission of this cancer, that she learned that she misheard a doctor. And, uh, and she told me that um, if she had heard her doctor correctly, she's pretty sure she would have died. That it was, that it would, her attitude would have gone in the opposite direction. So this gets back to the very thing that I'm talking about, that all the moods and, and emotional state that we experience are produced by the thoughts we believe, we believe, that turn into what we expect will happen. Our whole life—that's—that's that's, our whole life—is created. The life we experience, the what, the life we live through, is created absolutely out of that, out of our mind, out of the thoughts that we think and that we are turning into our belief system that are generating the experience of life we're having, the emotional experience of life that we're having, that's generating either pessimism or optimism in terms of what our chances are of achieving the good life. Um, but there was those kind of stories happened over and over again. I remember one time there was a woman. Um, I was facilitating a group of people who were life threatening. She was recently diagnosed uh, with breast cancer, and she came in and she had a great attitude initially. I am, I am not letting this cancer win, um, and I am going to do everything I can, including really participating fully in this group, so that I build the most powerful attitude I can to combat this. And then one day, about two months into coming to group every week, she passed a room where there were people in that room who were grieving the loss of a loved one. It, somebody in their family had died. Either someone who had, who had come to the, the group of, where people were life-threatened dealing with it, or somebody who didn't. And she looked into that group. And she saw their sad faces, you know, this early on grief. And 
she she her attitude collapsed. She came into group and she she started crying and she said, um, "I just started imagining my parents are going to be in there, my boyfriend's going to be in there, my brother and sister are going to be in there," and um, she she began to really feel gloom and doom. And I turned to her and I said, "So." Can we do a little reality check with you? And she said, okay. And I said, is your mother and father in that group right now? Are your brother and sister in that group right now? You know, you're living in the future. And the, the future, the future, when we live out in the future, it's always anxiety. You know, future thinking takes us almost invariably out into anxiety, just like past thinking takes us into regret. Or, or anger about the past, you know. But you let them both go and come into the present moment, and now you have an opportunity from a from a better thought, producing a better mo- uh, emotion, to choose a better direction that you want to go in. And that and your direction is always formed in terms of your attitude. Attitude is your direction. Um, it's. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know. Like look at those people. It doesn't matter their circumstance. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it, doesn't much, it doesn't get much more dire than that. Now, yeah. um, a little bit earlier, you mentioned something that I wanted to follow up on just with um, you were talking about the, the, the wiring of the brain. And uh, can you tell us a little bit more about specifically what that means on a like on a on a very uh, practical level? Because there are actual neuronic links, correct? I mean, it's is there's a. I forget what the actual substance is, but there's a tangible pathway in your brain, is there not? There's a, a billion of them. <laughs> More than that. You know, the, you know you, the brain is, you, you, there is many nurse, uh, neurons in your brain as there are um, stars in the Milky Way, and, and uh, many of them have 10,000 uh, connections forming networks. I mean, it's, we we are virtually a, a, a universe walking around on two legs, and it's from our brain, and our brain takes its direction from our mind. And there's two systems that we get wired for. And one, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of systems, but you know, in terms of answering your question, there's two key systems. One is called the higher brain, and that's a prefrontal and mid prefrontal cortex, in which everything you think of as intelligence is human intelligence is generated. Without that part of the brain, without the prefrontal cortex or the higher brain, uh, we wouldn't have art and science and architecture and agriculture and commerce and democracy, and we wouldn't have any of it. Um, it's it's our genius that we've created all of that. And it's also where the chief executive of our brain has its office, you know, strategizing, performing executive functions that um, – formulate goals and strategic plans to reach those goals. It's where the better angels of our nature occur, making us empathic and loving and able to think beyond a limited self-interest for a greater good of our family, of our work unit, of our community, our country. Um, I mean, there's so many wonderful things you can say about that part of the brain. It's just incredible. And then there's another system, major system, is called the lower brain. Um, the limbic system, and it's where a, uh, a, re- a region of the brain called the amygdala is located, and then the amygdala is basically the fear center, and it makes uh, and it, it's 
responsible for generating um, a whole range of negative emotional states um, from aggression to fear to depression to anything you think of, any emotion that would fall under fight, flight, or freeze. It's generating that. And it's not particularly intelligent and not in a way that we think of intelligence. It's got a survival intelligence, which means it's highly reactive. And the way in which it's highly reactive is kind of like name that tune. Since it's survival, it wants to make a decision quickly. It's not interested in the fact. And so where you hear like, like three or four bars of a, I don't know, a Beatles tune and you jump to the conclusion, well, it's this Beatles song. Well, what, what our emotional brain does is that it, you're looking at my face and you can, my face resembles somebody who hurt you, who betrayed you perhaps in some way, who caused you a, a, a huge a trauma, emotional upset. Your brain's going to trigger a, a, an aggressive or, or survival kind of response to that based on jumping to a, a false conclusion, misperceiving you, and then you're going to behave from that. Uh, and it happens like lickety-split, knee-jerk. And so it's, it's a reactive form of intelligence, and it doesn't think about, you know, it doesn't think for the greater good. It thinks about its own survival. It thinks about make, meeting its own needs. And those two parts of the brain are bumping into each other all the time, and so if you inherit this gene that predisposes you to stress reactions, that lower part of the brain is going to be what's generating a lot of your experience of life. And but you can rewire it. You can change, as I said, you know, you, if, you, if you take hold of your mindset um, and move it in a different direction than what the lower brain generates – uh, what will happen is it'll it'll your your brain will rewire to calm it down, and um, I'll amplify that higher brain function that puts you in the in the driver's seat of really creating a good life for yourself. That's so fascinating. When, and when you're talking about rewiring, you're literally talking about new neuronic synapses. Yeah. Yes, and neurotic pathways. Exactly right. Yeah. So, like for example, awareness. You think awareness um, is you know, it, it is could awareness actually, my awareness actually changed my brain? And the answer, it turns out, is yes. As you become aware, so, so say, for example, you're wired for hyperactive stress response system. Your brain jumps to conclusions and gets you into trouble and you're having to apologize for your reactivity. Or as the example you gave, you know, you, 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 you uh, in a traffic jam and you immediately, you know, get rageful. You know, or, or angry about what's going on, and and by the time you show up at work, you kind of spent. You know, you've kind of blown a fifty amp emotional fuse, and you're in recovery. And that's one of the problems is that when you have a stress reaction, you're dumping stress hormones into your system, and those stress hormones literally shrink that higher brain, that stuff that that brain part that makes you, uh, um, gives you the fluid and creative intelligence to succeed at life as well as the emotional and social inte intelligence that's going to instill joy in your work and peace in, in your life and love and harmony in your relationships, you know, it actually shrinks the neural circuits that achieve that for you. That's, that's insane. It's, and on top of that, it shuts down major systems. It shuts down uh, your immune system, so that means you're going to get sick. It also sets your emotional set point to negative. 
because when you think about it, if, it, if it's a survival system, um, you know, nature evolved that survival system not to turn you into loving kindness when you're faced with a real and present danger like a bear, but to excite anger, you know, a response or, or intense fear that freezes you up to increase your chances of surviving. Well, if you're reacting to a traffic jam stressfully, you're dumping stress hormones that are doing that, sticking you over to, to being emotionally negative, releasing stress hormones that are dumbing you down, lowering, temporarily lowering your intelligence by as much as 40% came out of a Yale study. Wow. And, and then on top of that, it, it alters your DNA. So that your chromosomes begin to put out abnormal cells that prematurely age you by, by as much as 10 years. You know, you lose 10 years on your life by living a life of stress. So there's what, what you, if you relate to that, you understand there must be a better way. And there, there is a better way. And the better way is to start your day, for example, if, if you're having trouble with, with traffic jams, to start your day positive. You know, when I ask people, how do you start your day? Most of them say, well, I, um, I get up in the morning, I get the kids fed and dressed. You know, I go, gulp down two cups of coffee. I get myself dressed. We jump in the car and we drive into a traffic jam that pisses me off. Mm-hmm. Well, that's framing your day um, in stress. And if that's every day like that, then you're reinforcing a pattern of negativity, of stress and negativity. So they, what the research finds, if you take 10 minutes in the, in the morning, get up ahead of everybody in your house and frame your day in a positive mode by doing a very simple meditation practice, that what ends up happening is that you, you that 10 minutes actually stimulates your brain to, to keep you in a, a positive emotional state. You tend to be more sub- constructive and, and supportive with people during the day. You're more engaged. And engaged employees are more successful employees. And that evening, you sleep better at night, all for 10 minutes investment. And what ends up happening is as you do that, you bring into awareness during the day the stressful thoughts, the negative thoughts you're thinking, and you bust them in, in the way that I was talking about that I did with my brain tumor. You let them come into awareness. You understand the story they're telling. You you uh, deconstruct it down into the one fear that's driving, that's driving this reaction, which for most people in business is a fear of failure. And then you shift. It was my experience become what I don't believe I'm going to fail. My experience become. You do that during the day. What science found is that your um, higher brain, it stim- that's awareness, stimulates your higher brain to release a substance, an enzyme called um uh, GABA. And what GABA does is that it creates a condition called fear extinction. It, it creates a pathway, a neural pathway, down to the lower brain that sends a signal to the lower brain to stand down. To knock it off. <laughs> to knock it off. You know, we're, every, we're not going down that dark alley and getting beat up again. What we're going to do, everything is okay, and the lower brain quiets down, and the more you operate every day from awareness, the more you create that structure that generates fear extinction, and and no fear, no stress, and now you're beginning to move your life into a place where you're choosing your own way. You're moving your life into where it's easier and easier for you to accentuate the positive attributes of a of a peaceful, positive 
attitude, but it takes practice. And that's what that's what my book lines out. It's it's the it specifies the practice that have been shown to work to take your life in a completely different direction because it's taking your brain, it's wiring your brain to take you in a completely different direction. Yes, I was going to say that uh, all of this is detailed in your book called The End of Stress, uh, The Four Steps to Rewire Your Brain, which you can find on Amazon for less than 10 bucks. Um, and, you know, when I when I think about those neuronic pathways in your brain, something that, that, that there's a powerful metaphor that I experienced that uh, might be helpful for others. I went to a survival school one time. Uh, it was a week long out in uh, Northern California and we were learning how to track animals. And so we were out in the woods and, and the trainer said, if you were, you know, deer sized, what path would you choose? Well, you could clearly see there was like a, a primary highway that all the animals chose from big to small because it was the easiest pathway. Um, and then as the animals got smaller, you could you could literally see the little exit ramps. They taught us and trained us how to see all the pathways, the organic pathways throughout the throughout the forest. And I think of that in terms of my brain and how thoughts travel through my brain. And so, you know, just like in a forest, if you walk the same path over and over and over and over and over again, you're going to create a very clear common path that's that's easy to see, that's easy to travel. So when you talk about it becoming easier and easier, the flip side of that is that maybe at first it is a little bit difficult because you're really forming a new path. But as you, I would assume, as you continue to, to, to train those new thoughts. It's kind of like going to the gym where you're building up that muscle memory, so to speak, and, and creating those new neuronic pathways. Is that correct? That's correct. And, uh, the really good news about it, it's called neuroplasticity, which is neuroplasticity defined in simple terms is a change of experience changes your brain. And so, you know what, that begs the question again, well, what changes your experience? And everybody wants to know, well, your attitude shapes your experience. And so as you focus on it, so, so if you want to go into the mechanism that leads to this brain change that puts you in the driver's seat of your life so that you're living a good life instead of a life that the lower brain's dictating to you, a misperception of threats that don't even exist, right? So when, when you make that shift, it takes about four weeks hmm. if, you, if you do it consistently. And neuroplasticity, again, it, it begins with your attitude. That change of attitude that changes your experience will change your brain. And, and it turns out that the change that, that, we're, that does the job are, is very simple. It's very simple things. It's not, it's not a complex process. It's a question of, of showing up and doing, and doing them consistently over a period of time. But most of them don't, don't, don't add anything to your to-do list. Hmm. I mean, anything of any significance. I mean, if 10 minutes a day starting your day in a positive note um, isn't asking much. Being uh, consistently aware of negative, stressful thoughts that you're thinking and shifting them by not believing them, that's, that doesn't add anything to your to-do list. That's meeting the problem where it occurs, which is in your own mind, mm -hmm. and shifting it that way. I teach another tool that, that's very successful at, at busting a collapsing a stress reaction. It's called the clear button. And you just imagine that in the center of your palm, there's a button 
it's kind of like, see, your your fingers form this V, and right here in the middle is an acupuncture point that is actually used to, to lower hypertension, which is, you know, another way of saying stress. And you press that button, and you keep pressing it, pressing it, and you count to three. As you press it, you breathe in, you count one, and on the exhale, you think red. doesn't matter what colors you think. You breathe in, count two. On the exhale, you think blue. Uh, think, breathe in, count three. On the exhale, you think green. And then you let go of the button, and you just let your mind go completely blank for about 10 seconds. And that email you were going to fire back or fire off to somebody that you know was going to get you in, in trouble eventually, but your amygdala doesn't care. It wants, it, you know, it wants to throw the punch. It's in, in fight mode. Um, you won't send that e- email. So, You'll die so what's, the purpose, what's the purpose of the colors? The, the purpose of, it, uh, of everything from pressing the button to counting to the colors is distraction. The one thing about the one characteristic about the, the lower brain, the amygdala, the brain's fear center, is that it's fully developed in a human being by, by the age of two. And so that's why, you know, when sometimes when we see somebody in a full-blown stress reaction, we say, they behave like a two-year-old. Well, that's yep. A two-year-old was in charge of the brain at that moment. When I and so every parent knows that when you have a two-year-old in a tantrum, you don't use logic and reason on them. You know, you don't apply, tell them spiritual principles. It, it doesn't work on a two-year-old. And it won't work on your two-year-old amygdala either. You distract them. So what a, what a mother will do will hand the baby their baby bottle or a toy or a cookie, or look over here. And so that's what that tool is doing. It's distracting your your amygdala. And, you know, it's, as I said, it's not very intelligent. Control switches to your higher brain. You calm down. And now you're looking at this email you're about to fire off, and you hit the delete button because logic tells you it would be insane to send that. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's, just, it's just making things worse. So you're talking about a, a I, I'm familiar with that term um, uh, pattern interrupt. So there's right. a, there's a reactive pattern there that that's been long established since you were a toddler probably, and and so the the tool that you were talking about, and I, I want to make sure that that was clear uh, for those that are not watching this on video and just listening to it. You're really talking about imagining uh, uh, imagining a button on your hand, and so at the center of your palm uh, on your palm. And then what did you say? You press the button. You press it and you keep pressing it. Okay. And then you, and you, uh, yeah, you count. Then, that's right. Then you count to three and you, you count one on an in-breath. And then on the out-breath as you exhale, you think of a color. Any color you want. doesn't again, matter. All of this is just designed to distract and to, to break the pattern of the amygdala, lower uh, what I've heard called the lizard brain or the animal brain. Uh, so you're not in that reactive mode. No, the amygdala is not the lizard brain. It, it's a it's the emotional brain. Got it. The lizard the lizard brain is everything that you do that's automatic. This is this is the part of the brain that's kind of like the survival mode, and it does some good things. You know, it creates some good emotions. But yes, what you're doing with the clear button, what you're doing with almost all of the tools, is moving yourself from a where where you're a choice. Um. That's that's uh, that's the major change that you're creating for yourself, where 
your 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 brain it's you using your brain instead of your brain using you yes. the lower brain using you and and that's where you get you know attitude is choosing your own way so, so you get to this point where you look at you know, like psychology, what they say is that you have a choice. If you, when you initially work with a client, they, you know they're really um, they're really into their story. They're really into uh, their dysfunction. And you'll you, you would ask them, you know, figuratively, like, do you today? Do you want a hammer to your head, or would you like your shoulders massaged? And people actually will go, give me a second here. Let me think about it for a second, because you know we. We'd rather be right than happy, you know. And oftentimes, what we think we're right about is um, doesn't have anything to do with right or wrong. It has to do with misperception. We're misperceiving a situation that we're holding on to uh, by uh, with, with the misperception that we're totally right and the other person's wrong, yep. which is which emotionally means we're angry, right? And and we're suffering. And the massage part is of it is, um, would you would you like to see this in terms of a choice? You know, look at what you're sacrificing on the basis of a misperception that is telling you at the moment that you're right. That if you were if you quieted down, got a little more creative about the situation, a little more open with the situation, you might find some information that doesn't make you feel so right anymore, but makes you. That allows your heart to open a little bit, uh, and now your 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 opportunity to get connected with somebody has increased, which means your your chance for happiness has increased. Which so that it's a choice. What do you want? It's it's a choice between peace or fear. Which, I, I, as you've been saying, the consequences quite literally could possibly mean life and death. I mean, those thoughts. Uh, have a chain reaction that affects your actual uh, yes biology and your, your biology. biology. I, yes, I it a, does. A, a couple of years ago, I was um, I had I developed a lump on the back of my back, and um, fear kicked in, and I started thinking about what if this and what if that, and 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 so I empathize with your story a little bit too, and and. You know, because I had two little kids at home and I was thinking about, you know, gosh, what if something happens to me, et cetera, et cetera. And it got to the point where it, I was so fearful um, that it was painful. I mean, I, and, and in my head, I didn't make that connection yet. I, it just it was painful. And, and it so one uh, morning when I was driving to work, I I was like, I, I got to go to the hospital. Like, I got to I got to do something to address this. And ended up at the hospital and, and the specialist couldn't see me for two days. And those were some of the longest and loneliest two days of my life. But the, what was so um, compelling to me was when the um, specialist came in and, you know, in two minutes uh, basically did, you know, diagnosed it and said, oh, that's benign. It's, you know, it's a non-issue. I mean, like a light switch, my pain went away. And it was such <laughs> a, it was such a, profound moment for me to experience thought and pain as directly connected. And the second that the fear went away, the pain went away, like literally a light switch. And and I was like, oh, I'm good. I'm out. And I could breathe again. And I was fine. And and as, as a person generalizes from that, from those experiences, that this has implications for everything, not just what just happened here with the doctor, but every every level of my life mm -hmm. 
then they get interested in how do I how do do I empower a really positive attitude? I was doing a workshop in Switzerland similar to what you were talking about, and there was a woman who was in a lot of pain, and her pain was the result of going through menopause, and it was shutting down her life in a lot of ways. And, um, and she was really unhappy. She came to the workshop to see if she could shift it. And there was another woman who was also in pain, something to do with her spine. Um, and it got a lot, she, she had a lot of uh, back pain that was, she wasn't clear was related to tension. And so the woman who was in, in pain, suffering from what the physical changes that her menopause had created, um, was very skeptical. This has nothing to do with my mind. My mind's not playing any role in this. I just, I don't, I don't buy what you're telling me about that. This is so, her. This is her talking. Talking to me. Okay. In, in, front, in front of the, you know, fifty or so people that were there, and so I invited her to come out in the center of the room and work with me. And so we went through this process that's similar to the one I described uh, that I went through. You know, when I finally kind of faced the fear I was in. And, and so I got her to begin to feel the fear she had. And the fear she had was this isn't going away. In fact, this is just going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And then we went into, from that into the, to a story where everything, that every dysfunction that this was causing, like picking up a pot, having the strength to pick up a pot, so a number of different things, every time she did that, that, that concern amplified for her. Mm. And so we finally went through the whole thing. So what is the one fear that describes um, describes a story that you're telling me and all of these situations that you described? And she said, uh, this, the fear is, is that my life is over. The fear is, is that I will never experience the quality of life I once experienced before. And... Um, and then I asked her, how are you feeling right now? How's your body feeling? She goes, the, the pain is intense. Um, and she said, it's been intense all day. Um, it turned out the reason it was she was angry at me for telling her something that she thought would help fix her that she didn't couldn't buy. How, would, how would dare buy. you try to massage her shoulders when she wants to keep hitting herself over the head? Yeah, the head. <laughs> exactly. It makes you angry. It makes you frustrated. And then, you know, your stress comes on. And now, you know, your your mind is racing away with you. And so I asked her, what is your experience coming when you don't believe that your life is over, that your quality of life is over? And she has some struggle with it. You know, I, well, I mean, you're asking me to fool myself. I said, well, you know, that's what a placebo is, too. You know, it's, it's asking you, everything's a placebo. Yeah. If every, if mind is everything, then everything's a placebo. Mm. And, and, and what, my, the, what my mind is doing most of the time is thinking, thoughts. And so I finally got her. I said, okay, let's just pretend you're a little kid and you're, you know, you're playing a game. And she was, she was able to do it. I said, so what did your experience become when you don't believe your quality of life is over? And she let out this big sigh, ah, as you can imagine. And then I said, hey, just be there in that sigh. And I said, now just relax into it. Just relax into the space. Do you feel feel things are kind of opening up. You're opening up. She said, oh, God, I just felt my heart open up. She got kind of tearful. And I said, just relax into that. And you could see she was beginning to feel peaceful. Mm. And then she then she says, oh, my God, the pain's gone. 
which I didn't know if that was good. I wasn't going for that. I was just going for her emotional state to be better, that she could begin to practice, and I knew her pain would go away eventually. And then from across the room, the other woman who had the back pain, she says, oh, my God, my pain's gone. And I said, how is that so? She said, I did the process that you did with her. I did it internally with myself. And then another person who had some kind of pain, some kind of wrist pain, she said the same thing. And what we were all discovering, what we were all demonstrating in that moment is that mind matters. Your state of mind matters greatly. And there's ways in which you can shift your experience by letting go of a negative thought that you're believing is generating your suffering that will not only alleviate that suffering, that emotional pain or that physical pain, but will also, if you do it consistently, will wire your brain for a higher emotional experience. It's like higher mind, higher brain, higher self, higher life. Mm -hmm. It, It just follows that pattern. And all it takes is a consistent practice of doing very, very simple tools every day. Can I ask you to, to clarify what those four uh, steps were? I'm sure you've mentioned it, but sure. I, we haven't stipulated which four they were. It, it, in the book, it's called the Thought Awareness Tool. And basically what you do is what I did when I was standing before, you know, looking out into the black hole of, uh, of the future, what it was going to do to me with that brain tumor. So the first thing is you have to become aware and present with the painful thoughts you're thinking, with the stressful thoughts you're thinking. So whatever, for, for her, what her what, what she became aware of is what do you think when you feel the pain that this menopause is creating? What's the thoughts that you think? And so we went through that. And then we, then we began to see, well, there, here's the story you're telling yourself. The fact that I can't pick up this pot without pain means my life is going down the drain. The, the fact that when I stand up, this part of my body hurts means that, that it's going to not, not only continue to happen, it's going to get worse and worse until my life is just oblivion. You know, you, so what you're doing is you're, you're, grab, you're becoming keenly aware of those thoughts that you're thinking, the story they're turning into, and then, then you got to simplify it. You know, your brain really responds to sim- simplified things. You say, what is the one fear? And I could state in one sentence, it summarizes this painful story, this negative uh, emotional state that I'm generating off of my thoughts. And for her, it is my quality of life is completely over. It's going to get worse and worse. And, and then she, she could see, you know, she believes that's a thought she believes. And then what is my last thing? What does my experience become when I don't believe that thought? And invariably what people will feel is relief. And then the then what you do is just relax into the relief. And what you will find, you're, you're in a whole other experience now. And that experience is like you're, you're moving the, the, the visceral kind of way to describe it. You're moving from contraction where you feel like the, the walls are closing in on you, right, to expansion. And what you realize is, is that what was making up the wall that was moving in on you were simply thoughts that you were believing that when you stopped believing, you found your experience of suffering stopped as well. You stopped suffering. You stopped stress of suffering, fear of suffering. 
And then what you understand is belief is powerful. What I believe is powerful. And I have a choice of what I what I choose to believe. And that and as I exercise that choice, my experience of life uh, is created. And out of that experience of life, my my life is created. This is such a such a healing uh, <laughs> idea, methodology, what have you. Um, it's it's so needed in the world today. From you know, I, I asked you earlier about uh, whether or not you've worked with with veterans that have PTSD because uh, I did a podcast call the other day with a, a vet who was dealing with it and starting a foundation. And and frankly, regardless of the military or whatever, you know. People deal with trauma in all different aspects. And so this, to me, really unlocks the human potential, which um, you touched on earlier. Uh, And again, it's so invigorating, especially when you link it to actual health biologically. There's a second part to that story that um, I started to tell you with the tumor on my back, which um, I don't know if you've – I don't know if you – have heard this yet or not, but, um, I was actually, so Don's daughter, uh, Holland was in a personal development program with me. And, um, so let me back up for a second. So when I went to the hospital and I told you the story, when the, when the fear went away, the pain went away. Well, I still had a a bump on my back. This is kind of gross, by the way, (laughs) I'll just preface that, but I still had that bump on my back. So for a couple of years, I had it on my back. And, um, so we were in this personal development program and, and I got to know your daughter and, and, um, you know, we were, uh, partnered up on several activities. So we got to, you know, go through several exercises together. And, and, um, at one point we were chatting, this is now outside of the, the program itself. We were at a friend's apartment and, um, you know, she said some things to me that were just so loving, just, just from one human being to another, just very loving. And, and it opened my thought. And I remember this. Um, um, profoundly because the second that I sort of connected to that bigger idea, that higher idea, the the thing on my back like discharged. And I don't mean like all at once. That's disgusting. But like it's it started to drain, and and it it, it was. I know this sounds woo woo to some people, but you're it, it, it's not when you actually look at the science. This is what's so fascinating about this conversation is there is actual science and studies that reveal the biological manifestation of quite frankly shitty thoughts <laughs> and higher thoughts and uplifting thoughts. And so when I was dealing with the pain because I had so much fear in my thought about what is it going to mean for me and am I going to survive yeah. this, et cetera, et cetera. That manifested in a lot of pain. I, I felt physical pain, and then when I, when my thought was opened and 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 brought to a higher level, biologically, that something changed. Something definitely changed because I don't have that lump on my back anymore. So yeah. this is powerful stuff. So and you know when you when you said that uh, that the that lump back there was kind of ugly. You know, it, it was also a, a really good friend to you. It was a t- it was a teacher to you? Mm. It, it it gave you that those two insights that it gave you, and and those are profound insights. And without it, you may not have had those insights. You know, it gave it gave you a direct experience of what's possible when your mind shifts, and you, you and the and 
you know, one of the things you got to, we all have to understand is that a lot of people have a lot to say about a lot of different things, what you should and shouldn't do, and on and on it goes. Um, I never expect anybody to, to believe me and what I'm saying. The, it's your own experience that's the great validator. You know, when we have an experience, uh, a spiritual experience, when we have an experience like the one you just described, when I had the experience of I can let go of fear and function out of out of peace, and that when I did function out of peace, the what ended up happening is that the brain surgery that I had was a complete success. Is one of the first times that that they had that kind of level of success with it. I walked I walked away from that. Um, surgery pretty much unscathed and and then i thought well you know my doctors must have exaggerated this you know they made a big deal much bigger deal about it well there was this guy he was a disc jockey a famous disc jockey from the central valley of san francisco and he and i were patients of the same surgeon and his his uh brain tumor was smaller than mine mine was much much larger and um he and i kind of became pals, you know, at least at least in the doctor's waiting room. You know, we talk and good luck. And we actually had our surgery on the same day. Mm. I was in the morning, he was in the afternoon. And uh, so this one day when I I was actually I went jogging. You know, I could it was like four or five weeks afterwards I'm jogging and this is this was uh, in juxtaposition to I was supposed to be on a walker. You know, that's what was predicted for me. And that afternoon, I went to the um, appointment, you know, check up with my doctor. And I was thinking of confronting him and saying, you know, the, the, the prognosis you gave me, you exaggerated it. Because, I mean, look at me now. And as I walked into the office, the disc jockey was, getting, was being helped out of his car onto a walker, barely making it into the office. And uh, his... His outcome was everything that they had predicted for me. Hmm. I felt terrible for him, but I also recognized there was something to that shift I'd made when I had diligently practiced for four weeks. I had four weeks ago of shifting. I didn't indulge during that four-week period one fearful thought. I had them, and I, they didn't get past my door. I shifted them with this process, this thought awareness process. I became keenly aware of the, the stressful or the fearful thought, the negative thought I was thinking, and I, I would ask myself, what's my experience become when I don't believe that? And I didn't believe any. Mm. Actually, during that week, I stopped believing anything I was thinking. I just relaxed and allowed myself to be present. And I even got my my job back. <laughs> it was Actually, I was in the Department of Medicine. I was shifted over to the Department of Psychiatry where it was better for me anyway. I'm... I'm more inclined in that direction. And the reason was is that the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry um, had heard about me and asked me to come over and interview, and he said that your attitude, anybody can have an attitude like you ha had facing what you face. I wanted him in my department because we need to do a lot of attitudinal shifting here. <laughs> and I got my job back. I shifted attitude actually changed that reality. And then from there... I got a launching pad into doing the work that I described at that institute. And at that institute, um, we got challenged by man who started the Charles Schwab Corporation with Chuck Schwab, Larry Stepsky. And he came and uh, challenged us to take our approach to catastrophic life events 
and and morph it into a model that could end stress in the workplace because uh, his his stress level nearly killed him. He had a massive heart attack that should have ended his life but didn't. And so he helped fund a think tank that went on for six years in which we looked at the problem of stress uh, from from the angle of trying to find a solution, not just managing it, not just reducing it to some level, but creating a solution that created a kind of a transformational shift for people. And we were lucky because at that time, all this research was coming out. The research was coming out about it's genetic. You know, there's, we have this huge genetic factor, so it's not your fault, you know. And then the research came out about neuroplasticity. You can rewire that brain to <clears throat> shift that genetic disposition you have that's, that's having you live a, a life of stress. We also, the research came out that over the 40 years of stress reduction that companies paid millions of dollars for, Stress America actually went up 30%. And we found that the reason that it had, the reason that stress management, quote unquote, failed, is that it was focusing on stress-related behaviors. And the evidence at that time was the stress-related behaviors are hardwired into the brain. You, you, you can't um, operate conditioning yourselves out of them unless you're really changing people's experience of themselves. And so our solution said, if you're going to get a solution to stress, it's going to have to be rewiring that faulty neurocircuits that's creating this, this reactivity inside of a person that's making their life stressful. And, and the evidence was you can do it. And so then we marched it out into major corporations with, uh, at this point, um, approaching 5,000 people, hmm. and we, we get much higher rates of, of, of people's stress level going down. Um, and then you also see uh, really wonderful indicators, like they're indicating their relationships are improving, their health is improving, their uh, level of creativity and productivity, the quality of the work is improving, all of which is an indication that Control is shifting from that lower brain to that higher brain where, you know, where intelligence, we can bring all of that intelligence uh, not only to solve our, our, our problems, but to go beyond them. And the incredible thing about neuroplasticity is that it's redefined human potential. Because in the early days when I was working in human potential, we really thought of it as you've got like this much human potential, Right. And if you do a certain, if you, if your mindset is a certain mindset, you are likely to realize uh, most of it, if not all of it. Well, now what we know is that through neuroplasticity, as your mindset changes, as you realize your potential, your brain wires, rewires, and then it not only rewires, it stimulates the growth of new connections in the higher brain, so your potential now it has expanded. You're in a new paradigm. And as you move through that paradigm, it's like Bruce Lee said, that there are no limits. There are only plateaus, and you should not stay at the plateaus. Well, that's a perfect definition of what your brain's capable of. The more, the more you realize your potential, the more your potential expands. And it all maps back to your mindset. And there's really only two mindsets people need to think about. One mindset is negative. Um, it's, it's producing 
the stress and the fear and the pessimism that locks you into to a life of stress and and actually grows the lower brain and shrinks the higher brain. And the second mindset is positive. It's it's generating uh, calm, creativity, love, peace, and it does the opposite. It expands those those higher ranges. And that's a shift we need to make from negative to positive, accentuate the positive. I have about a couple of other follow-up questions I want to ask you. We are getting short on time, but um, I do want to uh, take one second to highlight something that you said a few minutes ago, which was that you had the thought, but you didn't believe it. And one of the one of the gifts that I've been uh, given in a lot of the personal development programs that I've been through is to recognize how um, unspecial I am in in having these thoughts. And uh, so when you're talking about that, we're a lot of us are predisposed genetically to this reactive, uh, negative fear um, type thinking. When you, when, when, for the listeners that are listening to this right now, if you have those negative thoughts, know that that's not who you are. We all get those negative thoughts. It's, it's the idea of receiving those negative thoughts and then saying, is this serving me or is it not serving me? And then choosing what is most empowering for you and, and, and believing then what's most empowering for you. Cause we all have the thoughts that I'm a failure or I suck at this or that was horrible or what have you. But, um, but to let go of those, I, I do a mental process where when those thoughts come, I first ask myself, am I just exhausted? <laughs> Cause half the time I'm freaking <laughs> exhausted. It'll uh, do it. Right. And, weekend, I, and, right. I, and so I, t- I wrote down one time, learn to distrust your tired mind. I, so I, I always thought, you know what, when I have those crappy thoughts, uh, when I get refreshed, I'll rethink about it. And if it's important, I'll, I'll address it. So that was kind of my first thought. But then the second thing was I, I mentally go through this visual of it's like somebody handing me a piece of paper and I go, oh, that's a crappy thought. And I wad it up and I throw it in the trash can. And so it, it's it's separating, disassociating myself from the incoming thoughts and then choosing which ones are empowering or, or uplifting, et cetera. Um, and uh, so with that, <laughs> we are uh, out of time. I would love to actually do another call with you because, I, like I said, I do have a lot of other questions to ask you. But um, Don, thank you so sure. much for your time today. And again, as a reminder, um, the book is The End of Stress, Four Steps to Rewire Your Brain with uh, Don Goey. You can find that book on Amazon, of course. And then Don, also uh, tell us about the, real quickly, about the video. Um, you have some video. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, there, there, there's a series of videos that um, have been created, that I've created. And um, they're high quality. They're on a platform where uh, it's called Digital Chalk. And it gives you access to them. Um, there's a workbook. And there is also a, a little homework assignments you, you can choose to take or not. Um, and it complements the book. And the videos are only eight minutes long. They're short recaps, but and they're they're really focusing on the tools. Uh, that you know, a number of there's twelve tools that really work, and you really don't need to do all twelve, but you need to practice the twelve for a while to see which ones really speak to you. It's really kind of integrate with the way you, 
you think and feel and work through things. Um, and so the videos really help you do that. And you can go back and listen to them anytime you want. They're, they're a good complement to the book. They reinforce the, the change that the book is empowering. Um, and where can people go again to get those? Oh, they can go to the endofstressbook.com and it's on the menu. Okay. Excellent. Don, thank you again for your time. This was uh, a very liberating conversation. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. I'd, be, I'd love to come back. Good deal. Th take care. Okay.